the fact that we've gathered today with uh, snow on the ground reminds me to tell you I appreciate the fact that you weathered the storm and that you came today. But it also reminds me of the story of perhaps many would argue the greatest preacher who ever lived is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And a similar kind of situation uh, that he had in his own life, it was 1850, and he was lost, young man. But the Spirit of God had been convicting his soul, just miserable over his sin. And on this particular day that he was born into the birth into the kingdom of God, there was a huge snowstorm. And it's kind of stalled everyone's plans. And Spurgeon, because he was snowed up, as he said, just made his way to his primitive Methodist church in Colchester. And on that particular day, the pastor was actually snowed up. Couldn't be there. There was only like five people there. And this wiry little thin man uh, took the reins to preach the sermon. And he was just a, a shoe clerk. And so he makes his way to the pulpit. His text was, Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and you shall be saved. Spurgeon said he didn't really have a whole lot to say about the text. He just let the text do the preaching. And he only preached about 10 minutes. Don't think that's where we're headed with this. <clears throat> but, he, but he preached about 10 minutes. And when it was over, he looked directly at Spurgeon and said, Young man, you look miserable. And he said, you know, I'm not, I was, wasn't used to any pastor just calling me out and looking directly at me, but that's exactly what he did. Spurgeon goes on to say, but it was a good blow, and it struck me to my heart. And actually, on that particular day, he looked, actually the man, the pastor says, young man, look to the Lord and live. And that's exactly what he did on that day, trusted Jesus as his Lord. So you never know what God is going to do in a service. You never know when God is going to send someone who is a seeker to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And thus, we have one of the greatest evidences of that to preach on today. Acts chapter 10. Make your way there. Verses 1 through 8. We're going to see Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters in the book of Acts. Some would argue it is the most important text in the book of Acts. Furthermore, if you're saved today and you're not a Jew, you should hope and think that this is the best text in the Bible because the gospel reached you. It is a monumental event in the course of redemptive history to see what happens in Acts chapter 10. The great apostle Paul will, in fact, say something about this mystery. Don't turn there for the sake of time. Just listen Here's what Paul says in Colossians 1, 24 through 27. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of glory. 
So Paul magnifies this awesome monumental theme of the gospel not only going to the Jewish people, but also going to people like me and you. And Paul highlights that as that great mystery and how that the Lord Jesus Christ through the new covenant, when he inaugurated the new covenant, he broke down that barrier between Jew and Gentile that existed. So you are included today in the gospel, spreading to the ends of the earth because of what happened in Cornelius' household. So that's pretty awesome, isn't it? To be able to look into the text and see the fulfillment of it. Again, when you read Acts 10, this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the fulfillment of the reign of Jesus Christ over the Gentiles. We studied that during the Advent season. Now remember, one of the themes of Acts is the universal gospel of Jesus Christ becoming universal in experience and application. Thus you see it clearly in Acts chapter 10. But was this the first time that the gospel penetrated Gentile hearts? No, it wasn't. Do you remember Philip? Philip preached to the Samaritans. He preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. So the gospel was already penetrating the Gentile world. However, it was this event that was the turning point for total Gentile evangelism. In fact, the events that you see in Acts 10 are going to be repeated in the book of Acts four times. It's interesting that one commentator said... That if you highlight the verses that are spent on the conversion of Cornelius in the book of Acts, you come up with 66 verses explaining this event. That's pretty incredible. That that much, that big of a chunk of Acts is dedicated to Cornelius' salvation and or explanation of it. So let's read it, Acts 10, 1 through 8, and then let's do a Bible study this morning in the middle of the snow. Y'all want to do that? But you're warm in here, right? Hope you have a warm heart to hear the word. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour, that would be around 3 p.m., of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Curios? What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Verse 43, end of chapter 9. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. That's to pick up, right? So he's reminding us of that. And then the Bible says in verse 7, When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and they... Having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right. Uh, 1 through 8 introduces us first to an Italian, God-fearing, centurion Gentile. That's the description of who he is. 9 through 16 of Acts 10 will be Peter's preparatory vision 
of what God will have him to do. 17 through 23 of chapter 10 is this, well, actually, let me go back to 9 through 16. I need to say this to you. It is also a magnificent hunting proof text. Because Peter is told to rise, kill, and eat. I had to say that this morning. Because I'm a hunter, and I like that verse. All right. Well, in 17 through 23, the messengers, messengers are sent out to get Peter. And he arrives in Caesarea. 34 through 43 is actually Peter's sermon to Cornelius and those who hear. And then in 44 through 48, we have what we call, you had a Jewish Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And here you're going to have in Acts chapter 10 a Gentile Pentecost when Cornelius is baptized and all of those in his household who believed the gospel. So there's no question that Cornelius had been assigned to this particular geographical area. And if you study Palestine and Israel, you'll find out that this was in the region of the northern coast of Palestine. This guy had a popular name, Cornelius. How do we know that? Because about 60 B.C., there was a Greek by the name of Cornelius who freed some 10,000 Roman slaves in the Roman Empire. History says that all 10,000 of those freed men slaves took the name of Cornelius and named their children and grandchildren after Cornelius. What a popular name. Do you all know that story? That plus 25 cents might get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's today. But still, it is the truth. And so the Bible says that he was of the Italian cohort. And in the terms that you would think of today, he would have been a non-commissioned officer. And he would have been over how many men? 100, right? So, do we have centurions in the New Testament? In other places? Of course we do. And what's interesting is that every single one of them is mentioned favorably. I find that interesting. But we know, of course, that these guys were considered to be the salt of the Roman army. He was also an Italian. The only negative thing I could see among any commentator was the fact that John Calvin said that most Italians are haughty. <laughs> Isn't that good? Are any of y'all of Italian origin? Let's see if we can figure out who the haughty people. But maybe that's the case. And they thought they owned the world or it was just their world and everybody else was walking through it. But it's kind of interesting that Calvin would note that usually Italians are kind of haughty. But the Bible, let's get to the good stuff. It says that he was godly. That word is translated devout. It means he was pious. He was a worshiper of God. The picture we get is that this individual, Cornelius, was sincere in his worship to Yahweh God. So the text also says that he was fearing God, and note this, with all of his household. So not only Cornelius, but also all those in his household were also what would be called God-fearers. It's interesting to note that from a Jewish perspective, on Gentiles, they could never ultimately be Jews. So you had two categories of Gentiles that were God-worshippers. You had proselytes. You ever heard that word before? We're told that sometimes in Southern Baptist life. Don't come over here proselyting our church members and trying to get them to join your church. Right? 
Y'all act dead today. Did that snow fall on y'all's brains? Is everybody awake? Yes, the fact is, that proselyte, and here's the deal about that. They fully committed themselves to Judaism, even circumcision. Now, that's a commitment, right? Those who were proselytes took part in Judaism, meaning the dietary laws and everything associated with it, and took part in circumcision. In other words, they were serious about their commitment. And although they were brought into the covenant people, at the end of the day, they were still considered proselytes. But you also had another group called God-fearers. And this is the group that Cornelius would have been in. They believed fully in Yahweh God, the God of Israel. They worshipped Him. They also attended the synagogues. They virtually did everything else with the exception of a few dietary laws and they would not succumb to circumcision. Right? That's the difference between a proselyte in this time frame and a God-fearer. But they were also viewed as second-class citizens, at best, from a Jewish perspective. And so because of the dispersion, what did we know about synagogues? They popped up everywhere because Jews were in the dispersion and they were worshiping in synagogues. So although many God-fearers would refrain from eating pork, not to offend their Jewish friends, there were still other issues that they dietarily may have partaken of. But the main thing was they did not succumb to circumcision. It's kind of significant because it specifies that they feared God with all the house. So it's not just Cornelius, but the rest of his home that were considered to be God-fearers. You know, there are people who argue for for household baptism. Hmm, That's not a good idea when it says that all of them in the household feared God, but we know something stronger than that. You can't, just because you're a God-fearer doesn't mean you are saved by grace through faith. So in the sense, when you get to Acts 16, it's going to be very similar. What do we believe about that? wasn't household baptism. It was that each one individually trusted the, the Lord of glory and followed in baptism. So the Bible says that this individual was given charitable gifts to people. He was generous and benevolent, supported the poor. And note this one. He beseeched God constantly. This individual was continually beseeching God. There's no reason in reading the text that we would think that this was only a momentary thing where he wasn't beseeching God ever before. And all of a sudden, at this moment, he begins to beseech God. I don't think that's the case at all. What was he earnestly beseeching God for? Now, the text doesn't tell us, but I've got a glorified opinion. I believe that he was beseeching God for true salvation. Why? Because in Acts 8.40, Philip makes his way to this region in Caesarea. And could it be that Cornelius is an earnest, God-fearing man, which he is, but that he actually hears that the gospel, according to Christ, is being proclaimed in Caesarea. And he's heard these reports of the gospel. And maybe his heartbeat is... God, if salvation is really through your Son, the Messiah, please visit my home. Maybe that's what he's praying. I don't know. But I do know this. He's seeking because he's first been sought by the Lord. That is absolutely true and clear from the text. So, in verses 3 through 6, we have his vision. And Luke reminds reminds the reader 
In case you think this was something that happened in a dream, forget it, because it happened at 3 o'clock during the day. Now, for some of you Baptists, that could be true today on Sunday at 3 o'clock, right? That you'll be dreaming. But the issue is here, it's in broad daylight. And what do you know according to Jewish custom about 3 p.m.? It is called the hour of prayer, right? Good chance that the angel comes to Cornelius as he is praying and beseeching God, and the angel calls him by name. Now here's, can you imagine this? That you're praying, and an angel appears, and calls you by name. Here's this bold, courageous centurion, and the text says he stares at the angel in terror. Terrified. He's scared to death. He sees a powerful, and in most terminology, a majestic military type figure as an angel of the Lord. It's not some cherub that looks like an overweight infant. Hello? Oh, don't that drive you up the wall of how they depict angels? I mean, they're missing the boat big time. No one in Scripture says to an angel, oh, how cute, right? That does not happen. So, how does Cornelius respond? Kurios, which is the Greek understanding of the Hebrew Yahweh. So, at best, uh, here, here's the deal. There's no question that he said this as a worshipful acclaim. Cornelius is saying, Lord, what is it you would have me to do? What is it, Lord? And don't you love what, come ne- what comes next? Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. There is a sacrificial quality to what the text is talking about. Here is a God-fearing Gentile who I believe really wanted to know the Lord. And in true piety, he was seeking the God of Israel. I think we, uh, he would have been painfully aware, just like the Ethiopian eunuch that went up to Zion to worship in the temple, but he was leaving with his scroll, and he was reading Isaiah, but he needed someone to translate for him, and God sends a messenger named Philip to translate. So he would have had the same understanding as Philip, as the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm an outsider. I get that. I'm an outsider. So the angel could have told Cornelius the gospel. You know, it could have been like Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. But it's not that way. As a matter of fact, he calls, you would think that maybe he calls upon a ministering spirit like an angel to give a Cornelius the gospel right there in that place and he's saved and that could have taken place. But the fact is, he uses human beings and what an awesome commendation that he would send those men to Peter and that Peter would bring the gospel. Sometimes when I'm preaching along or when I share my faith and share the gospel, I'm thinking, Lord, the magnitude of the gospel that we're giving out is really fit for an angel, not me. You ever felt that way? That, you know, it's such an incredible thing to contemplate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that we offer people through Christ. And we're thinking sometimes, Lord, this is not fit for someone sinful like me. It needs to be an angel. But that's not what God has called us to do. He's called men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like a fellow sinner, just like Cornelius in his shape, God sends a preacher to give the word. As a matter of fact, God had already told Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. 
And that's not popery. That's not the papacy. Uh, and he takes that key, inserts it right into the heart of Cornelius and opens the door of salvation. To God be the glory. He's also given those keys to the church. He's also given us the keys of the gospel to be able to give the gospel to individuals. Now in verses 7 and 8, we see Cornelius' response, his obedience. Remember, he's a military dude, and buddy, does he ever obey quickly. The Greek text indicates that when the angel was leaving and finishing out the orders, that Cornelius was already out to obey God. That's the way we ought to obey God. Not stop and contemplate what the Word says, but obey! Immediately. And that's exactly what he does. He begins, as the angel is departing, he's already in the submissive spirit of taking the task and doing what he's supposed to do. He ends up calling one another God-fearer. Just think about this. This is probably Cornelius' influence on those around him, right? And another God-fearer is sent out. Uh, What a profound impact this is. And the stage is set for an incredible, redemptive, historical event. Now, I've got about 20 minutes to play. All right, let's ask some questions of this text that are very, very important. First, let's deal with a few issues. Do good works merit grace? Did y'all read the same text I read? I mean, here's a guy, and people can easily infer this from reading this. He's God-fearing, he's charitable, and God recognizes this, tells the angel to tell him this, as well as Peter doing this later. But I want to remind you that nowhere in the Word of God are we told that good works merit the grace of God. Nowhere in the Bible are you told that you can be saved by works. As a matter of fact, Romans 11, 5 and 6, listen to the text. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Folks, if you can be saved by anything, period, that you think is meritorious to save you, then grace isn't grace any longer. There's no reason for the King of glory to come down to save you from your sins and give you acceptability before the Father if you can do it by keeping the law. Christ died in vain. If you can be saved by keeping the law. Paul says, if that is the case, then grace is no longer grace. And I love grace. Amen? It's no longer grace if you can be saved by the works of the law. So the consistent teaching of the Bible is that good works cannot merit anything. Paul will over and over and over again have to instruct the churches, don't move away from plain and pure grace. How many times does he have to do this to those who are in the churches? The Corinthians, uh, the church of Colossae, over Ephesians, over and over again, there is this propensity for us to move over to anthropocentric means of being saved. That is something that I can do to save myself. Folks, The glory of the gospel is you can't do anything to save yourself. The glory of the gospel is it's accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul will say to churches over and over again, it begins with grace. In the middle, it's grace. And it's going to end in grace. And he says it over and over. Second question. Does faith require specific knowledge of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Or is faith satisfied by simply... The conviction that God is merciful. To put it another way, 
was Cornelius already saved? I mean, he sounds like a good Baptist to me. He's praying. He's charitable. It's a memorial that lifted to God. There has been, over the past 10 to 15 years, a belief going around that conscious faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary for salvation. This is true even among the top 100 listed evangelicals in the world. There's many of those who would believe that as long as you're sincere in whatever faith you believe, God is going to credit you with salvation, even though you don't believe specifically in the knowledge of who the Son of God is. This brings out a direct question. What about those who never hear the gospel? What about those who never hear the gospel? They would say that a person is sincere in their faith, and if they're sincerely seeking God, who they actually do not know, it will merit them salvation. The merits of Christ will be applied to that person after they die. So they say ultimately it's not an issue of conscious faith in Jesus Christ, but sincere faith. So that leads the proponents of this uh, to say that the important thing on mission, or missions as we know it as Southern Baptists, is to go tell people that if they're sincere in their religion, they've already been forgiven. Folks, this is happening all over the world. Now, folks, is it possible for people to take part in salvation that Christ has secured for them, even though they don't know the content of the gospel? Did you know that this text is the proof text for those who believe such a heretical view? Do you know it's found right here? Uh, because in Acts 10.2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to people and prayed continually to God. Verse 4. The Bible says, And he stared at him in terror, and he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 15. We'll get there next week. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call uncommon or unclean. Wow. That sounds good, right? Verse 31. The Bible says, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does, not, and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Don't you see how people can read that and come away and say, Well, it seems like to me that here's a God-fearing guy who didn't at this time know the knowledge of Christ, but they're assuming that they're already saved because they have sincere faith. So they would say that Peter simply just came and announced to him that you're already truly saved, and I'm going to grant you baptism in the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Now, before you cast this off as something only theological eggheads talk about, let me tell you something, folks. This is serious. It's very serious. It's not just for a few uh, theologically-driven pastors and our Ph.D. guys to think about this. And it's just not saying these guys are eggheads. No, this actually affects you and me. It affects who we are. First, let me tell you, this relates to the necessity of missions, doesn't it? Think about this for a moment. The issue of, is conscious faith in Jesus Christ necessary for salvation, relates directly to the necessity of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because if conscious faith in Christ is not necessary 
order to, in order to participate in salvation, missions are no longer necessary. You have no reason to give your money to Lottie Moon if what these nuts believe is true. Right? There's no reason to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. If this heretical view is true, I'd suggest that we'd be much better off to tell the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims to remain sincere Buddhists and sincere Muslims and sincere Hindus. Because your sincerity in a God, even though you don't know who it is, is all that you need. Now folks, if you believe this, you cut the nerve right out of missions. There's no reason to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What should we spend our missionary money on? If this, if this is true, then we have no reason to fund missions at all. We have no urgency. That's the second thing. The necessity of missions is gone, and also the urgency. I've got a conviction from the Bible that those who don't know Christ are going to perish. For God so loved the world that He gave His only one unique Son, that whoever believes in Him will not but have everlasting life. The verse that everybody loves so much says there's a danger. If you don't know Christ, you're going to perish. So there's not only this necessity of missions, but there's the urgency. If people die without knowing Jesus through the gospel, if they don't have the knowledge of who He is, that He died for sinners on their behalf, then folks, they're going to perish. So the Bible presents this urgency to take the gospel to those who are perishing. Every hour, that people die without a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are people who are going to a Christless eternity without salvation. So if what people have to say about this passage is true, if people can be saved with a form of Christianity, without the content, we're, sudden, we're suddenly hit with, okay, what are we going to tell people? Are we just going to go around and say, you know, folks, to all the good Jews and good Hindus and everybody else, it's only sincerity that matters. You do know that that's where the media is, right? Yeah, that's where they are. It's only sincerity that you need. And let's just let's let their right for them be right for them. We can't do that, folks. We can't let their wrong be right for them. We are, uh, you remember a few years ago when Southern Baptists came up and said, hey, let's take the gospel to the Jews. How dare you? Why would we ever take the gospel to the Jew? Because if the Jews don't trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're also going to perish in hell. That's why we do that, folks, because of the necessity and the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Should we just say, be sincere? Jesus is just another option for you, so just be sincere. Well, you know what we can also do? We can let the text speak. You know, a lot of these guys that proof text and use this to say that you can be saved without a true knowledge of Christ, they didn't read the rest of the passage. They stopped short. What did Peter say to Cornelius in chapter 10, 39 through 43? Listen to the word of the Lord. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge 
to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Right? What does he do? He preaches Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. So to be God-fearers, here's a God-fearer. To him, a God-fearer. God says, right, you got to... To have forgiveness of sins and to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter's report and what he says in Acts chapter 11 when he's reporting on what happens to Cornelius in verses 13 through 14. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Did y'all see that? He's going to declare to you a message through which you will be saved. You and all your household, i.e. if they believe the gospel, they will be saved as well. Pretty clear, isn't it? Listen to the church's response in verse 17 in Acts 11. Well, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, who is, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they all glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice it doesn't say to the deeper life. It says to spiritual life. What gives you spiritual life? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must hear the gospel and believe. And notice, God opened the door and gave Gentiles repentance unto life. And aren't you glad he did? You wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the fact that were not for the fact that God did this. Now the Bible says that Cornelius was a devout man. You know what I take away from that? Devout people need to be saved. Right? You can be a Baptist from your radiator to your tailpipe. You can be a Baptist that is frequent to the church your entire life and still die and go to hell. You can be a God fearer. You can. Be a Republican. You can do all these things. But that does not qualify you for heaven. I want to remind you that in Acts chapter 2 verse 5. Listen to the explanation of the people gathered that day. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. But what do we know about those men? They were lost. Until they heard the gospel that day. And 3,000 of them got saved. They were devout men. On paper, they looked like the real thing, but they were not. So Cornelius doesn't illustrate for us that God-fearing people are already saved. He illustrates to us that God-fearing, devout people need Jesus in order to be saved. That's what it teaches us. How do we explain God receiving these things as a memorial? Anybody have that question? I mean, it seems as if the angel is responding to the acts of sacrificial acts of Cornelius. Well, here's a simple understanding. Those who are being drawn by the Spirit of God become seekers. Do you agree with that premise? Those who are drawn by the Spirit become seekers. They are seekers, but what does Romans 3, 11 through 12 make absolutely clear? The Bible says in Romans 3, 11 that no man seeks God. Period. Have you ever read that? Your mouth is an open sepulcher. That's pretty raunchy. 
No one. All have returned out and have returned altogether unprofitable. No one seeks God. No one. But here we have an individual that is seeking after God. Because our normal propensity, propensity is to say, well, I'm a God for myself and I'm going to do life my own way. And that's what depravity does. I like things my own way and I'm not going to seek God at all. And that's the natural man doesn't discern the things of God. No one seeks after God. Yet what happens when the sovereign spirit of God begins to draw us and to convict us? Just like Spurgeon that day who was just miserable in his sin. God sends the gospel. Right? It is the gospel that accomplishes this. A person that is a true seeker is a person who is being drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. Cornelius and others like him did not get saved through their seeking. They got saved through their believing. God was drawing them and then they believed in the gospel and were saved. So salvation, uh, there is a salvation in finding and being found, right? That's the explanation in the Bible. So when a true seeker really seeks, then the Spirit of God brings that individual to the place where they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cornelius was operating in the light that God had given him. Is anybody familiar with the text that talks about that? It's Romans chapter 1, where God has given to all of us an innate understanding that He exists. He's done that through His creation. As a matter of fact, He can do it through that marvelous thing out there called snow. That just don't happen. It's just not wafted out of the air. Because Job 37 tells us that God even controls weather and uses it as an instrument. Well, it's, it's His invisible attributes that are made manifest to us that gives us this understanding that God exists. Now, that's not enough to save you, but the more light you pursue in the knowledge of God, God opens your heart and gives you more understanding of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's taking place. Our God welcomes that. Our God receives that. And that's what Cornelius is doing. He sends the gospel. Is that not the point of Acts 10? Oh, the point of Acts 10 is that when God is drawing a sinner, God sends the gospel to redeem lost sinners. There's a fellow uh, by the name of Don Richardson that wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. If you ever grab a copy of that, it's story after story after story on the mission field of how God sends the preacher to someone who is seeking. And they share the gospel and they are eternally saved. It's story after story after story. What does Paul say to the Romans? We're almost done. What does he say to the Romans about the preaching of the gospel? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Don't you see from the text clearly that here's an example, not of a man who is devout and saved, but a man who is devout and lost. And God sends the gospel to redeem his heart. And Cornelius stands as a monument, not to the fact that people of saving, you can be saved apart from the knowledge of Jesus, but how the sovereign God of the universe sends the knowledge of Christ to those who are seeking him because of the Savior's sovereign grace. And our prayer should be, Father, don't let us ever believe anything 
that would undermine the necessity of believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If our church does that, let's shut the doors and go do something else. If we ever waver on the necessity of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in order to forgive sinners, then folks, we're not a church anymore. Right? We're not a church anymore. Father, my prayer is give us large hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ and taking that gospel to a lost world. Why? Because there's no chance of salvation apart from the knowledge of Jesus Christ that He saves sinners. What a passage. Monumental. Salvation to the Gentiles. How? By grace through faith. Father, God, we just thank You for being able to study Your Word. And Lord, perhaps there's someone You brought to this church today in the middle of a snowstorm that feels like a good person. They perhaps do devout things, but they've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. God, would you intercept them today? Father, if there's an individual who's just completely miserable in their sin, knowing full well that they've never trusted in your forgiving grace to save them, they've never identified with the fact that you bore their sins in your body on the tree, as it says in Colossians, so that if they turn to you and trust you only for salvation, that you would forgive them of their sins and give them eternal life. Lord, perhaps there's someone under the sound of my voice just like that. Father, for Christians, God help us never waver on the necessity of believing faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. God help us take that message uncompromisingly, unashamedly to the entire world that Jesus saves. That He alone can redeem hearts. For the Muslim, for the Hindu, and for the Buddhist, they must trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation in order to be saved. God, help us. Give us bold and courageous hearts and spirits to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. You've said it, Lord Jesus, that the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. You're going to get it done. God, help us to obey you to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.